You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, Episode 62, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, folks, today I've got a real treat for you. We've got author Robert Pavlis, author of the books Gardening Myths, Garden Myths and Building Natural Ponds. Uh, he's also the uh, host of two blogs, Garden Fundamentals and Garden Myths. Check those blogs out. You can ask him your questions. Um, he lives in southern Ontario, Zone 5, by um, was that USDA uh, Gardening Zones. Um, he contributes to the uh, Plant of the Month uh, series of the Ontario Rock Garden and Hardy Plant Society. He's a master gardener. Uh, he also teaches at a uh, local university. And uh, he has a six-acre uh, garden that he built. How many years ago, Robert? Oh, it's been 14 years now. 14 years. A six-acre uh, garden called Aspen Grove Gardens with uh, three th- over 3,000 perennials growing there. Uh, where he does tours, and uh, you, I guess you do sort of like teaching tours there as well? Well, I have uh, usually an open house uh, several times a summer, and I get various horticultural groups coming through. Right. And, yeah. All right, so, Robert, we're really glad to have you here. It's good to have a guest. I'm sure uh, uh, my uh, my listeners are happy to hear uh, another voice uh, behind the microphone today. I'm uh, glad to be here. That's great. Uh, Robert is, uh, like myself, a fellow Canadian, but he lives in a different province than me. Uh, he's in uh, north of me in Ontario. I live in Nova Scotia. He's in Zone 5. I'm in Zone 6. But strangely enough, it's probably warmer where you are than here. Um, uh, right now, it's super hot. What it's, was the temperature is, today? Uh, close to 30. Wow. Yeah, and it's been like that for almost a week now. It's just really crazy weather here. Yeah. Uh, today here it was uh, unseasonably hot. I think it got up to uh, 26, but that was the hottest day so far this year. It was 25 today, 26 tomorrow, but then tomorrow, uh, Saturday it's going to go back to what's normal for here: 16, uh, 17, 16, and rainy, and, and around six degrees Celsius at night. Uh, so uh, you know, certainly. Uh, what part of uh, Ontario in again? I, I can't recall. Uh, we're we're Guelph. just at the south end of Guelph. Guelph, that's right. Guelph, that's right. Um, so Guelph is, uh, I guess, west of Toronto. For those that know that landmark, is, is that correct? West or north? Yeah. Slightly northwest. Yeah, uh, we're we're almost straight west. Straight of west. Toronto, north of Hamilton, and uh, sort of east of London. Right. You're uh, are you south of Lake Superior or Lake uh, Huron? Yes, yes, we're definitely south. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I lived in London for a year uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, very different <laughs> very different climate there. Everything in Ontario is so much more stable and pleasant, generally speaking, although it is uh, unbelievably hot in the summer. Um, certainly hotter than here. So I thought we'd start off by just having a little chit-chat about how your garden's doing, that sort of thing. So uh, why don't you start things off, Robert? How's, how's things going in your garden? Well, it was really a strange year so far. Uh, we had a really cold winter, and there's a lot of things that seem to be dead. Oh, no. Like your perennials, you mean? Perennials, shrubs. Uh, it, it didn't seem that cold going through it, but I guess the this year we, we, we had a very long stretch of cold, whereas we usually get cold and warm and cold and warm. Mm-hmm. And then we had a cold spring and nothing really happened. And then suddenly it got super hot. So everything's happening at once. And right. it's kind of interesting to see that 
some plants are, are sort of blooming on normal schedule and other things are, are sped up and they're blooming too early. Um, it's a really crazy, crazy summer. Now, the, the perennials that uh, appear to have died, were those ones where you were, like, bending the rules, zone six perennials you have in your zone five garden, or were these, like, old hardy plants that should be fine no matter what? No, they, a lot of them should be hardy. Oh, wow. They just didn't like the – well, I, you know, the hardiness zone is, is uh, just an approximation anyways. Yes. It gives you an idea what will grow. But the actual soil conditions and how well it drains and how much snow cover you get and so on, all of those contribute a lot to hardiness. Exactly. Right? Yes, so the zone, yeah, you, you really, I mean, the zone is, is very useful, but it's, it's just a guide. It's not the full story. <laughs> no, no. So our problem we have is uh, we don't get a lot of snow cover. So I can actually go north of here in areas that are colder and they can grow things I can't because they get a reliable snow cover and the snow is like an insulating blanket on the ground and keeps everything nice and warm. Yes. And without that snow you get these much larger fluctuations in temperature and some plants just can't handle that. Yeah, like you know, imagine if you have a good layer of snow on the ground the, the soil might stay at zero-ish, you know. Um, but if there's no snow, it, I mean, we have that problem here. Um, we don't have any lack of precipitation in the winter, but uh, and it depends on where you are in the province, but where I am, it's close to the coast. So we can get rainstorms in February. We have all kinds of, it'll be rainy for two days and melt, I mean, pouring rain and melt all the snow. And yeah. then it'll drop down to minus 15 <laughs> for, for two weeks and there's no snow and it just punishes uh, any sort of, I mean, only things like rhubarb and really, you know, a lot, a lot of things uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, a lot of plants don't like cold and and uh, wet. I noticed uh, this year, uh, I always leave a few parsnips in the ground to uh, let them go to seed, mm -hmm. and uh, a couple of the parsnips uh, rotted out. I've never seen that. I mean, usually they all make it right. Yeah. And it must have just been so cold and so wet, like you're saying. Yeah, I, I tried overwintering carrots this year in the ground. Yes. And um, a couple of them were fine, um, and quite a few of them were sort of half mushy. Mine, I've never had any, I mean, I'm sure it depends on the variety too, but uh, I've tried that a number of times, and they always turn the mush on me, never have any luck. <laughs> yeah. Well, nice, thing is, nice thing is you get some really early carrots out of the garden that way, right? Um, but uh, I wouldn't really call it entirely successful. The the other thing I, I probably could have done was mulch better. And if I put a thicker layer of mulch on there, the carrots might have been fine. Yeah, so I'm finding that uh, it makes a big – it's almost like you can use hay as fake snow. Uh, <laughs> you put down like six inches of hay over a garden bed and uh, – um, I had one bed that I put the uh, hay on really heavy, and it actually, it only had the slightest bit of frost in the soil. It, it was the first one to thaw. Hmm. So uh, it's kind of because uh, often, uh, since you're the garden myth expert, you'll 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 read a lot about saying, oh, don't mulch your 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 gardens will uh, will thaw very slowly, and there's an element of truth to that. But that, like a lot of things, it really depends how you go about it. Because if you mulch it really heavily. 
<laughs> it just won't freeze or it'll barely freeze or it won't freeze up as solidly. Um, so a certain, a certain amount of mulch can actually be have the opposite effect. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the tricks, particularly in a vegetable garden, is what you do is you, you mulch over the winter and then, in, uh, you know, in, well, around here would be March where the weather's starting to get a little nicer and then you take the mulch off. And yeah, pull it back a bit. Right. And uh, so you kind of get the benefit of both of those. Um, but I, I usually move my mulch back where I'm going to plant early crops like peas, for instance, and mm -hmm. let the soil warm up a little bit. Right. And that way you can plant a little sooner than if you had left the mulch in place. All right. So since we've got you on the show and you wrote a, a, a book on gardening myths, uh, how long ago did you write this book? Uh, two years ago, I think. Yeah, well, a year and a half. year and a half. That was not too long ago. Year, year and a half, yeah. Huh. And I, I plan to write a second one this fall. Garden Myths 2. Garden Myths 2, yeah. Wow. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. How, where, how, where can people buy this? The the uh, easiest way to get it is from Amazon. Amazon? Yeah, so the uh, book, both books are listed on Amazon, and uh, particularly you know, in Canada and the U.S., that's certainly the, the best place to get them. And um, is it available as an ebook? It is. Oh wow! So you can get well, paper or. Uh... Yeah, it's interesting. The I, I did a poll a while ago to ask gardeners whether they like ebooks or or paper books, and it was almost unanimous that they like paper books. I do too. And uh, I think in in other areas of interest, like if you're reading fiction and so on, that people use a lot of ebooks there. But in gardening, people want to hold on to it, and they want it as a reference, and they want to see the pictures, and uh, they just prefer the book, the the hard cop, you know, the paper book. Well, and they want to make notes, and I know I, myself, uh, I I don't do I don't read a lot of gardening material this time of year. I'm, I'm basically planting and doing stuff. But uh, in the long winter months, that's when I tend to read uh, about gardening, and uh, I do most of my reading in the bathroom. <laughs> so I, I just have like a, a book you know, I'll, I'll have a number I'll just work through different I'll pick them up at used bookstores or, or ones I've been meaning to read and I'll just stick them on the you know the the toilet tank sort of thing and when I go in and sit down I just start leaping through and I'll read uh, over the course of the winter I'll take a book and I'll read through it a number of times almost like I'm studying um, and I enjoy that process so I, I wouldn't want to leave a uh, you know, iPad or something. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't. It's just. I certainly prefer uh, paper myself. Yeah. So let's go further. Well, let let oh. me start you off with a, a new myth. Okay. So about a week ago, someone uh, online asked, uh, you know, should I be soaking my bean seeds? Okay, that's a good. That's a good uh, one, actually. You know, and and basically the comments kind of came back almost fifty-fifty. Some some people soaked them and some people didn't and and the same applies to peas right all the yeah. peas and beans are pretty dry and I made the comment on there that uh, soaking will speed up the germination mm -hmm. uh, which may be a good thing if you particularly if, if you start it late but then I got to thinking about it you know does that actually really work and that's how I get a lot of my myths I just ask a lot of silly questions yeah right? Does soaking beans actually speed up the germination? 
-hmm. And then I get online and I generally look for either university sites or I actually look for actual research studies. I like that's exactly what I like to do, like university extensions or actual academic articles. Yes. Yeah. Because you can find, you know, I can find a million websites of gardeners who have an opinion, but that doesn't really tell me what the truth is. No, and oftentimes they're just repeating what they read someone else say, and they may, may not have even, uh, you know, uh, have the first-hand experience with what they're talking about, because uh, right. sometimes you'll hear the most ridiculous things, um, and you'll hear them in multiple locations because one person said it, and then all these other people repeated it. Yeah. Well, I never did find any evidence for or against speeding up germination. Okay. But I did find something very interesting. What's that? Soaking in water, uh, anything over four hours, reduces the percent of germination. Really? And soaking overnight actually has a fairly significant effect on, on germination. Now, it varies a bit depending on which variety that you're, you're working with, but all the varieties that, that were tested, and I found three different studies that looked at different types of peas or beans or lima beans, and they usually did, you know, four, five, six different varieties. Uh, they all found the same thing, that soaking um, reduces the percent germination. Is that because it's an anaerobic environment? Well, yes, I think that's that's the main reason, right? So once they're sitting, once the, the seed absorbs some water, it starts a higher rate of metabolism inside the seed. It starts trying to do what it's once it's supposed to do. Yeah. And it's and, supposed and it to do that in an oxygen environment, I guess. That's right. It needs oxygen for that. Yeah. So when it's sitting inside water, uh, it doesn't get enough. In fact, one study actually used oxygenated water. So they, they wanted to make sure the oxygen level in the water was as high as they could get it. And they it's it still killed the seeds. Um, right. Now, you'll still get germination, but your percentage will go down. You know, so instead of 90%, you might have 60%, 50% germination. Right. So based on that, I haven't written this up yet, but based on that, uh, we really shouldn't be soaking our, our seeds in water. Um, the one thing that might work is if you put them in a tray so the seed is sort of sitting in water, but half the seed is in the air. Yeah, that makes sense. That might work. Yeah. And a lot of people germinate seeds in uh, wet paper towels. Yes. In fact, that's how I germinate most of my things. Uh, not really peas and beans, but other types of seed. And I think that works as well, too, because there's still lots of oxygen around the seed. There's a bit of moisture it can absorb, but it's still lots of oxygen. I can say I've, I've read that, that, you're, you know, that, that recommended trick. I've never ever done it out of pure laziness. I just I just stick them in the ground. I literally just push them in with my finger, yeah. and uh, wave you know sort of wave the soil over the top and and give them a good watering. And that's usually about all they get, and they seem to come in okay. Yeah. And I guess well, you know if you think about it, they're you know I could see a a, a variety of a species of plant that exists uh, or evolved on a floodplain where there was a flood season and then the flood recedes and then the thing grows. I could see a seed adapting to those conditions, but beans are not <laughs> a floodplain plant, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that certainly yeah. makes sense to me that uh, it would it would lower the germination rate. 
Yeah. I mean, peas and beans germinate fairly quickly anyways. Yeah. Um, but some people do it be because they can save a couple days, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's worth it if you, you know, if you waited too long and you just remembered you forgot to do the beans last week. <laughs> maybe there's a benefit there. But it sounds as if the best thing to do is just put them in the ground and water it and well, don't soak them. If you plant both peas and beans, your peas are going to come in before your beans anyway. So just about the time you're getting sick of peas, the beans will show up. Um, yeah. So I mean, that all depends on. I mean, not everyone has the same amount of space, right? Not everyone has a six-hour, a six-acre garden, or a, or even a twenty-five hundred square foot one like mine. Uh, so, well, what I what I do is I I have a trellis that's facing north-south, and on one side I plant peas as as early as I can, and some years it's too early and they get killed off. Yes, but I I try to get them in early and then the the beans go on the other side of the trellis about a month later oh really and so they both use the same trellis that's efficient and the peas are up uh, pretty close to flowering before the beans are you know say you know foot tall mm -hmm. and the peas are done long before the beans yeah and uh, that seems to work really well yeah um, so I'm actually using the same space for for both of them that way. Right. Yeah. And I I only I only grow climbing uh, peas and beans uh, that have a longer uh, harvest season. Okay. Yeah, I used to when when I lived so in I don't know how well you know Nova Scotia, but the the best growing conditions are in a, a place here called the Valley, um, which is uh, closer to the Bay of Fundy. Mm -hmm. um, just for the soil is good, but it's it's more than the soil. It's just it's just that the it's it's much. My wife's from um, southern Ontario, she's from Oakville, and uh, she loved it there because it's much more like it's much more stable, much warmer in the summer, and um, you don't get all this crazy rain and fog and all that sort of stuff. It's just better growing conditions. And when I lived there, I only planted climbing beans. Uh, I planted a, I always plant a half a bed of bush beans because they come in quicker. Um, but I would plant mostly climbing beans because I'd get more beans for longer. Mm. And since moving to this location, uh, <laughs> because it's just not as warm, I don't have the heat here. Uh, I've I only have one variety of climbing bean, rattlesnake pole beans, just because I like the way they look. Uh, but other than that, they're all bush beans. If I want to get any kind of yield, <laughs> you know, like to freeze and put things down and stuff, I have to go all bush beans, which right. uh, not as fun to pick because you're on your hands and knees and. <laughs> crawling around the ground and stuff like that but, uh, that's just just the difference we don't have the, the the same amount of growing degree days the same amount of heat here yeah. all right well I think we've beaten the hell out of beans so right. uh, what else you got for us Robert well um, I uh, got a little story about your rhubarb okay. um, oh yeah that's right so I tried blanching some rhubarb uh, this year for the first time now can you explain and to the I, listeners what what that means blanching yeah, so I just as the rhubarb is starting to grow in the spring, you cover it with something very dark. And I used some pretty large uh, plastic pots, but these were you know almost two feet across type. They were they were quite large. Yeah. And so you want to cover them up so they're completely dark, and uh, then you just leave them like that. And what happens is the the rhubarb 
doesn't get any light, so it actually grows very quickly. In fact, it, it grows, it would be twice as tall as the, the regular leaves that are outside in the light. Really? And the texture of them stays nice and tender. Why do they grow twice as fast? Well, I think because they're trying to find light. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, so plants are, you know, if they can't get light, they just start growing tall. It thinks it's underground. Can. It thinks it's under a bunch of leaves and, and fallen stuff. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't think, but it's, it's you know, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it turned out, it, it actually worked fairly well. So the, the, the stems were actually very tender, but the flavor was the same. Like I was hoping maybe they get a little sweeter or something. That didn't really happen. But the stalks are really tender that way. And, and when then, it's, sorry, when it when it's blanched like that, do you, can you eat the leaves, or they're still as horrible as always? Well, there's an interesting question. So, um, are rhubarb leaves poisonous? And most of your listeners will say yes. They're 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 toxic. You shouldn't eat the leaves because they contain oxalic acid, which is poisonous. So I asked that question about a year ago and said, you know, is is that really true? And it turns out that the amount of oxalic acid in the leaves and in the stems is about the same. Really? So you can eat either one of them. In fact, even more surprising is that things like beets and carrots have just as much oxalic acid in them as I've rhubarb. often found that uh, I've seen people out in their gardens eating raw Swiss chard. Yeah. And uh, when I've tried to eat raw Swiss chard, it feels like I'm eating a battery. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take it, you know. I don't know how people do it. Maybe I'm more sensitive to it than, than others. But yeah. uh, in fact, parsley has like four times as much oxalic acid. So parsley, love parsley. toxic than rhubarb. Okay. So if you want to try eating rhubarb leaves, uh, they're not harmful at all. Have you tried? Have you tried them? I, I find that they're not particularly tasty, and they're still kind of rough. Right. Even blanched. Even blanched, yeah. <laughs> you think I mean, they're, they're not they're 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 more tender than the regular green ones, but they're still. Um, I, I I don't particularly care for them. Now, I mean, I've never tried or eaten them or anything because when I was growing up, I mean, and I think a lot of garden. This is the problem with gardening. A lot of people run on the information they heard from someone. Someone said, and then it's a truth forever, right? So when I was a kid, someone said that rhubarb leaves have um, arsenic in them. Hmm. So I, I assuming you looked at a chemical constituent list of some kind? Yeah, it, it doesn't really contain arsenic. Okay. <laughs> so that's, I mean, more, more reason for why someone said is the worst uh, worst source there is, unless yeah. it's Robert Pavlis. <laughs> well, I, I grew up my whole life thinking that rhubarb leaves were, were toxic and yeah. you can't. Them. And in fact, a lot of people won't even put them in their compost pile because they're worried that the compost will be toxic and then that, that chemical will end up in their vegetables. Oh my goodness, that's, ridic that, that's ridiculous. Now that part, that part is ridiculous, but I see lots of people on, on the internet to uh, have that concern. Wow. Um, so anyways, that's a myth. Rhubarb leaves are perfectly fine to eat. They just taste bad. <laughs> they, just, they just taste bad. <laughs> Um, one of the, uh, uh, probably one of the biggest myths, um, it has to do with fertilizing and 
people have this feeling that they need to fertilize plants. Right. And I, I understand why they, they have that, because all the manufacturers of fertilizer promote that idea. Right? If you go in a store or go online on and Google tomato fertilizer and see the images, you'll see a whole page of tomato fertilizer, but it all has a different formulation. It all has a different NPK value. Right. So how can they all be right? <laughs> That's a good well, point. They, they can't. At, at most, one of those is right, and all the others are wrong. Okay. But in fact, <laughs> it turns out even that one is wrong. <laughs> right. Okay. And and here's the reason why. And it's it it's a fundamental problem we have in understanding gardening. We we think we have to feed the plant, so we ask the question, what food does the plant want? And that's really the wrong question. The reason we fertilize is to replace nutrients that are missing in the soil. Yes. So you will have soil, you might be missing calcium, so you've got to put calcium in. I might be low in nitrogen, so i got to put nitrogen in. We're both growing the same tomatoes, but we have to fertilize completely differently because we both have to add the nutrients that are missing in the soil. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what we plant, right? So the next question is, well, how do you know what's missing? Well, the only way you can really know is to do a soil test. Yes, and for sure, to know, to know for sure, yeah. Yeah, and very few people do soil tests. I've never done one. <laughs> well, interesting. I'm a master gardener, and uh, we tell everybody that you should get a soil test done. Yes. So at one of our meetings, I asked all the master gardeners, how many of you have had a soil test done? And there wasn't one in the room who had done it. <laughs> but we tell everyone they should do it. <laughs> I'd like to try it some some year. Uh, and I tend to, you know, if something looks, uh, if I have a garden that looks uh, performs poorly, I know something's wrong. So I'll, I tend to just, uh, you know, feed the soil a little bit. And uh, this year in particular, things seem to be coming in. Uh, all I did was was mulch it with. Uh, hay and seaweed last year and uh, everything is so far I mean it's early in the year but the things that I I seeded in um, under plastic in in March it's doing really well um, mm -hmm. I haven't fertilized my garden I've never fertilized it <laughs> I've yeah. never I've only ever mulched it or when I first built it I uh, I, I amended the soils with uh, horse manure and uh, you know, every once in a while, I go by a farm, and if they got a bag of chicken manure, I might you know, sort of liberally scatter that around. And uh, once in a while, I'll put a bit of uh, wood ash or whatever on there, but not too much of that. And just because I, I heat my house with wood, so I get all this damn ash, and uh, it is full of minerals. Although there is a, uh, not all the minerals are good, <laughs> so I, I you know try to keep that to a minimum. I feel like I should use it somehow. I put most of it on my grass because. Uh, uh, we have uh, acidity here, so it's 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 uh, alkaline. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've always gotten away with not using it. Although I do have, you know, every once in a while you'll have a bed that really performs poorly. Yeah, it's like that particular bed, and that's the other thing. I mean, I don't have one big garden that I rototill every year. The, each bed has its own unique soil situation, uh, so I'd have to test every single bed. They're all built at different times, uh, using different amendments and different mulches and so on. So. Probably be still fun to do. Well, I think most people uh, over fertilize. Most people don't need to fertilize. Uh, a little organic 
matter source is useful. So if you're using a little bit of compost or a little bit of hay, um, something like that, and you're putting that in every year, mm -hmm. uh, that's all you have to do, right? And if you do have a problem, if things aren't growing, well, then get a soil test done and, and see what's really missing. Yeah, I, that's, that's good advice. So the other thing a lot of people will then do is they'll, they'll get on the Internet and they'll find these little pictures where they'll show different kinds of leaves and tell you what the deficiency is, right? If, if they have brown edges, it's a boron deficiency. If, they're, if it's a bit yellow, it's this deficiency and so on. Oh, dear. None, of those, none of those work. Um, if you actually look at um, what causes those sort of things, you can have a half a dozen different deficiencies, and you don't know which one it is. It could be too much water, or not enough water, something's attacking the roots, yep. whole, yep. whole range of blight or whatever. It can be a whole range of things. So those, those pictures sound really great because they're so simple. You know, you just pick your leaf and compare it to the one that's there, and you know what you're missing. It, they just don't work. Okay, the, the chemistry in the soil and in the plants is much more complicated than that. And uh, you, you just can't rely on those. If you have a problem, the best thing to do is get a soil test and find out what's missing. That's true. And all, I mean, also just the general observation I, I find, like if you, if you have a garden, a situation in your garden, you just Google it. Um, typically, the first thing that comes up that's giving you advice is some website where they're selling something. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like it'll say, well, here's your problem. You need this stuff. Um, yep. So I, I tend to like uh, go to the source that's not selling anything like a university extension or, or you know, a, a particular uh, gardener like a, a Robert Pavlis or whoever. It's someone you sort of know and trust and they're, they're not selling you products. They might be selling books, but they're, you know, if they tell you get this, you know, get some sulfur, they're not going to make any money because the sulfur company sold sulfur you know yeah. so I, I tend to like getting my advice from people that aren't uh, aren't sort of in it for the money so to speak mm -hmm. that's good advice uh, the other thing I do on uh, if I'm looking up information is I look to see how much uh, advertising there is on the page yes. not necessarily a product but some kind of advertising and the more advertising it is the less reliable that site is yes Yes. Um, your best information comes from sites that have really no advertising at all. Uh, about your, just speaking to that, about your blog, I mean, I, I, I suggested people do this, but I just want to confirm this. Can people just go on your blog and, and ask you questions? Sort of. Okay. Um, blog, the, you can go to the blog, you can do a search for a topic. And, uh, for instance, if you type in rhubarb, you'll get my blog on the, the, the oxalic acid and rhubarb issue. And then you go down to the comments there and ask a question. There isn't uh, really an easy way in a blog to ask a question. So what I suggest people do is if, if they use Facebook is to go to my Facebook page, which is called Garden Fundamentals. And it's an open group, so they can join there and uh, ask any question they want. And not only I will answer, but all the other members of, of that group will answer it. And that's a lot right. of those people are from the, are, are people who visit my websites. Right, and that's good too because everybody can can see the topic and, and they can all learn together. That's right. Yeah, that's really why I started the group because the blogs really aren't designed to have an interaction, a conversation about a topic. 
Um, the comments work a little bit, but they don't really work great. Uh, but by having a Facebook group, now we've got a community of people and, um, you know, if I don't know the answer, someone else might come in and have the answer or someone will say something completely wrong and then we'll crucify them and tell them what the <laughs> truth is. <laughs> yes. uh, the, the Facebook group is, is not your typical gardening group. Um, it, it's, I won't call it scientific, but it's, um, um, it's a little more technical than your average group. So we don't post a lot of pretty pictures of flowers, for instance. Right. Um, people are asking more serious questions. So the garden group is Garden Fundamentals? Garden Fundamentals. Garden Fundamentals. And your two blogs are Garden Myths and Garden Fundamentals, correct? Correct. Okay. So if you just do a Google search on that, that should be – if you Google search those two, two, two terms, that uh, those should be the first things you see, if, or maybe your book on Amazon perhaps. Just for curiosity's sake, I'm going to type in here, Garden Myths. What happens? Gardenmyths.com. Leader in debunking gardening myths. There you go. So that's all you got. <laughs> pretty quick. That's easy. And there's an ad for your book right there. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Very well. Well done. Hey, everyone. That ends part one of my discussion with Robert Pavlis. We ended up talking well over an hour, so I had a lot of uh, audio to edit down, and I decided to turn it into a two-part thing. So stay tuned. We'll have the other uh, half of our, my discussion with uh, Robert Pavlis next week where we're going to talk about some other gardening myths. Uh, it was a great conversation I had with him, so I hope you found that interesting. And until next time, thanks for listening.